Theron is right. I am going to finish uh, Second Peter, no matter how long it takes. Just kidding. Uh, it'll be done in a, in a, in a Kenny's timely manner. Uh, but it's reality that requires action. Uh, as Peter closes out, that's what he's driving to. And there are certain realities that demand action. If a fire breaks out while you're cooking on your stove, a reality, uh, then you had better move to extinguish it. Uh, you jump into the deep end of a pool, you better start swimming, uh, which I learned through family connections, in-laws, uh, that, that certain people are genetically predisposed to being able to swim and some aren't, but that's a story for another day. Uh, I can swim, so you know who outside of the family can't. Um, I've shared this before. Uh, I've left my car in drive and hopped out to get things off the church porch. Uh, not my brightest moment, uh, and sadly, uh, a not brightest moment that I've repeated enough times that I do a mental park check uh, before I'm buckling. Uh, however, uh, you step out of your car while it's still in drive, and your new reality is sprinting, which uh, I've been had to do a couple times. Certain realities, though, require or demand action, and this is the, the point that Peter's driving to. God's truth is definitely one of them. Uh, his word uh, scripture, the Bible, is a reality that demands action. His truth never remains in theory. It always prompts living change. And so in light of the truth of his imminent return, and that's something that false teachers, and we're going to see uh, this morning, it's not the only thing they attack, but it's one of the main things they would zero in on. Because as we talked last week, it removes accountability from their life. And so you get rid of Jesus and you get rid of his authority. You get rid of accountability. So in light of the truth, and Peter made that clear last, uh, the last verses of an eminent return, he declares to the church now in verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And as you read that, it'll carry on into the next verse, and you see oftentimes, depending on your translation, a question mark. And oftentimes we think that Peter's asking a question, but Peter is not wondering what the answer is. In Greek, this is like a rhetorical question. It's actually not a rhetorical question, but it's a device uh, used in Greek that is very similar to that. Uh, but it, it drives to this. It drives to an idea of obvious expectation. Uh, Peter is not wondering what the answer may be. He's not even implying that they come up with an answer. That's why it's different than a rhetorical question. It is driving to a reality, an obvious expectation. It's setting the stage. Uh, he's prodding them to see this, how astonishingly excellent they ought to be in light of his majestic return. So it could have been written if we wanted to be more blunt and straightforward, in this sense, less artistic, less Greek, if you want to call it. It's saying this, you had better be amazing because Christ is returning. Astonishingly excellent in their holy conversation. This is the word for conduct. So he's expecting external behaviors, actions that would reflect the idea of godliness or excellence. And then he uses the word godliness because he says, I want you to look right on the outside. I want you to act like a Christian, external actions and behavior. But I also want you to have an internal heart attitude and reverence. And so what he's driving to is saying, because of all that's going on, because it's all going to be dissolved, because of the truth, the reality of his return, his imminent return, the fact that it's not delayed in the sense of 
how we see delay. God's not forgetting or loitering around. In light of that, you better make sure that your external behavior and your internal attitudes line up with God's truth. The reality of Christ's return brings the expectation that we will be people pursuing holiness inside and out. Not for the super-Christian, not just for some in the body of Christ, but that every believer will be in the pursuit of holiness. That that will be what our life centers around. Our Savior expects all from us a complete life commitment. The problem is, we don't want to give him all of us. Every action step is going to end with a problem. Because as Peter drives to the end of this book, he's making obvious, in his mind, obvious expectation. This is the action that links to the reality of God's truth. But the fact that we struggle giving God all of us, the fact that we struggle pursuing holiness as we should inside and out, that doesn't change the reality that Christ is coming back. Peter made that clear in the first portion of this chapter. And so we're called to be waiting and anticipating verses 12 and 13. He continues, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. See, we have an eternal perspective. We're to see life in light of God's plan. And then I'm going to add this in parentheses, his plan and his timing the whole question of his delay and his patience and his long-suffering, that becomes a problem for us as believers when we move our timing to our timing from his timing. So as we are looking at everything in light of his plan and his timing, and then we rejoice in that perspective, it's called uh, to an attitude of expectancy. You are looking forward to Christ's return. You're not just dreading it. Because when you have an attitude of expectancy, you're, by definition, means you're not worried or fearful of it. You're not saying, well, I hope the Lord tarries so I can get my stuff done. I, oh, I hope this works out for our whole family. I hope this or I hope that. It's not this fearful looking forward. It's this idea of I am excited for this to take place. As Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13 of that letter, he says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are excited about his return. We're looking forward to the coming, and, and the word in Greek is presence. We're looking forward to the presence of our Savior and the day of God, uh, which, as MacArthur notes, refers to the eternal state when God will have permanently subdued all of his enemies. Now, the day of God is different day than the day of the Lord. Now, when you look at this idea of the day of God, the coming day of God, we will see the day of the Lord, not the same, which speaks to the final tumultuous events accompanying the day of God. And so as we look forward to the day of God, when he will have subdued every enemy and he rules and reigns, we do so with soberness because we recognize that the day of the Lord brings judgment. We recognize the judgment, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. None of that 
sounds pleasant. None of that is what we would say, oh, I can't wait till God burns everyone up here. I can't wait till this is all destroyed. This world, and this is the reality we understand, as we look forward to the day of God when, when his reign is there, we recognize that the day of the Lord is coming as well, a day of judgment, and we know the world is going to face his holiness. And by facing its holiness, it will face its God's judgment. You think, well, God is strict, or God is harsh, or God is a dictator, or God is tough. Oh, God has been very clear and long-suffering towards us. We've had all of this time to recognize that he is holy and cannot accept sin. And so we are seeing a frightening, drastic, and swift judgment. We're not trite about what's taking place in the world. I, I, I never enjoy when someone speaks and they jokingly talk about how the world will suffer and how the world will pay for their sin. It's never a joke. As believers, we enter that with soberness, not with a joke or with joy. Uh, we see the destruction exemplified in Revelations 18, 8 through 10. This is where they're describing the destruction of Babylon. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Talk about quick. Death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and live deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing far off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. This is the reality we see. God's judgment comes on this world swiftly. The destruction is such, and recognize this, all the kings of the earth as they look, and Babylon is just a picture of, of worldwide judgment that will take place. As the kings look on, they're afraid to get even close because that judgment is so fierce and so quick and so drastic. They see the smoke, and where there's smoke, there's fire, right? We know that expression. They recognize by what they see from afar off that the destruction is devastating, that it's over. We recognize the judgment that comes with the day of the Lord. Yet we realize the future fulfillment. We know his promise, it says, and we know it comes to perfect completion. The day of the Lord must take place. The destruction, the judgment will happen, but we realize the fulfillment we're looking forward to the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells eternally. And sometimes we, we take the word righteousness and we don't put it to a street or practical le level. One writer notes this in looking at righteousness dwelling eternally. Sin, which has marred God's world, will not be permitted to have the final word. Righteousness is sinlessness. And so what will dwell eternally? There will be no sin. And other states this, the new heavens and earth, new in quality, free from any curse, will surely be beautiful beyond the wildest expectations of man. We cannot picture a perfect world. Now, I know how some of you start thinking of perfection. Because I remember being younger or thinking this way, you think, I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to see that. That's because you don't have an eternal perspective. It's because your life is centered on sin, actually, and you can't desire what God desires because probably you don't know him. 
Though every detail of the new heavens and earth is not at our fingertips, it's not been revealed. We don't know every nuance. We know a lot, but we definitely do not know all. The reality of a new heavens and earth should prevent us from being earthbound. In other words, from having the perspective I just described. Our goal should be him and his direct presence. Our desire, our focus, our want is his presence for all eternity. That's tough to fathom, and that's tough to want when you want everything this world has. It's tough to want when we're not connected as we should be to our Savior. Our goal is his perfect kingdom where sin has no foothold. It does not and cannot exist. The problem is we like our sin. We like our sin-stricken world. The thought of something totally different in quality is hard to fathom. And so what typically transpires? Oh, perfect world. People on clouds playing harps, right? Floating around, bored out of their mind. That's the implication. That's called satanic influence, if you want to put it where it belongs, worldly influence. It speaks to your sin and your sin-stricken heart because what do you do with reality? You mock it, you belittle it, or you minimize it. We like our sin and our sin-stricken world too much to think and visualize the beauty of life without it. You can't see glory in a way that you see positive. If you think it's going to be boring there, take a look at your heart. Examine yourself is what Paul would say because it's indicating something to you that you may know about religion, you may know about the Bible, you may know about Christ, but you don't actually know him. You don't have him as your Lord and Savior. But just because we have a problem with sin doesn't change the reality that we're called now to being and doing. And so as Peter talks about the end and he's made a point that that's a reality and as he's shifted and said, hey, there's an expectation of you both in your external behavior and your internal life and that, yes, you need to be waiting and anticipating. You're supposed to have an eternal perspective. You're supposed to be looking forward to a sinless world. You're supposed to be looking forward to living in his presence all the time. That's actually the, retur- the word for return is the word presence. It's he's returning, he's present is what it means in Greek. But while here... You are to be being and doing, verses 14 through the first part of 15. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, and there's an implication that you're actually looking forward to it, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As the loved ones of God, we are to be diligent to do our best, make haste, take care, hurry on, so that we're found by God. Because here's a reality you're hiding nothing from God. You can hide from us, you can hide from the church, you can hide from your parents, you can hide from your kids, you can hide from your, you name it. You can hide from anyone else. You may pull one over on this world's eyes, you may pull one over on those who are believers, you you can hide from anyone if you're good at hiding. You cannot hide from him. There is nothing hidden about your life. What you're thinking right now, he knows. 
He's reading your thoughts before you think them. You cannot hide from him. And he says, I want you to be found being and doing what he desires, existing and acting as our Savior would. And he says, I want you to be found in peace. Now, the word being found in peace, if you work your way through the New Testament, you're going to find oftentimes that being in peace references a relationship uh, with your Lord and Savior. It references being redeemed. Because if you're at peace with God, that means the chasm, the sin, strickenness, the, the separation is resolved. You are enemies with God. You're not neutral. You're never neutral. You're either enemy of God or you're his child. And so being at peace with God implies that we are redeemed. Peter is not speaking about being redeemed in this context. He's speaking to the redeemed. He's now speaking to the redeemed on how they're supposed to live. And they're supposed to be in peace of mind. And what that means is that they're confident in Christ and they're resting in eternal truth. And I put here in my notes, it's a settled life. It's a life that has been decided. Seeing his plan, living his priority, and knowing his purpose will be fulfilled. It says, Paul wrote to the Philippians, it's a call to be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's understanding that as we rest in him, that as we confront this life and this world and its hurdles, and there are hurdles in this life and in this world, uh, there are times when, when anxiety and care overwhelm us, but we're called to be in peace, to have peace of mind about everything that occurs here because we rest in him. It ties back to an eternal perspective. We're found by him, settled in peace and confident in him, and then we're seen to be living in purity. We are to be without spot. That means to have Christian character who you are. Who are you? What is, what is your character? Are you a fraud? Are you putting up a false front on Sundays and whenever you bump into someone who's a Christian and then it switches later on? That's someone who is not without spot. That's someone whose character is revealed by the company they keep. And then the second thing they said is we're to be blameless, and this speaks more to Christian reputation. One is your character, who you are. And some of us, again, might switch that up. And then reputation is what is thought about us. Are we to be peculiar? Well, yes, we are. But we're to have a reputation above biblical reproach. I say that because Christians can be accused by the world's standards. The fact is, we don't line up to the world's standards. Right now, uh, to line up with our world or a certain portion of it, uh, you have to label sin with every letter of the alphabet. You, you have to pursue a certain agenda. And it shifts all the time. And so as a believer, when you don't line up to their agenda, they will accuse us based on their standard. That's not what God's referring to in blamelessness. We may be falsely accused. Here's the reality. To be blameless means we remain above legitimate biblical accusation. But... This being is not a permission to be slothful, sitting around just being Christian. And I see that sometimes in people. Oh, you know, my life is, I am a Christian. I'm being Christian here. 
Uh, Peter doesn't leave that open. Instead, we are actively applying the benefit of God's long-suffering toward us, his being long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We apply ourselves while he tarries, doing now his will. So first, we're supposed to be in peace. We're supposed to be spotless. We're supposed to be blameless. And now he says, as we come to this, we're to proclaim his salvation and account, it says. Do something with, is what he's saying. Do something with the long-suffering of our Lord being salvation. He stated that God is long-suffering towards us, word, because he is seeking his children. He is, he is long-suffering, he's patient, not willing that any should perish. Now, Peter reminds us that we're supposed to act upon what God has done our Savior is long-suffering toward us, word. He's long-suffering as he adds to his family. And we as believers are now rejoicing in his patience and making the most of the time given to us before his return. What do we do with his time, his patience, his, as the world would throw it out, delay? It's not a delay. It's we are given more time. We invest in his purpose by proclaiming his Redemption and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. In other words, He waits and tarries for His purpose, and we align with His purpose. How do you align with the patience of the Lord? You proclaim His gospel. We are invested in His good news. Our redemption is no license or permission to pursue whatever we want. That's what Peter's saying. It is not to be security without service. Too many times I've heard the statement where we're just, well, I'm saved, so I'll do whatever I want because I'm saved. I can do whatever. I can do this because I'm saved. I have security, but I have no service. I put in my notes, honestly, if your disposition is to lean into security, well, at least I'm saved, and then I'll do. If, if your disposition is that, you should examine yourself to see if you possibly only know about Jesus and actually do not know him personally. If the response of your heart is that you have fire insurance, as a lot of people would say, what a, what a foolish statement that would be, then you need to examine your heart. If I had to pick a side, I would say, if that's what you think, then you, you most likely don't know him as Lord and Savior. Being a believer causes change in you. We may struggle, we may wrestle, but Peter is driving us to understand that we don't have a license or permission to pursue whatever we want. We pursue his purpose. We are called to be and do, settled in him and his purpose, living with clear Christian character and reputation so that we can be actively purposefully, and I put even aggressively, proclaiming his great salvation to a world in desperate need of it, whether they think that way or not, whether they acknowledge that need or not. There's a host of people I, I bump into, they're friends of mine even, and you talk about Christ, you talk about salvation, and in some way, shape, or form, they twist, turn, or move the conversation away from it. Whether they make a joke, whether they change to football, hunting, you name it, they, they move it away. Whether they acknowledge it or not, though, 
What we're called to do is to actively, purposefully, and even aggressively preach the gospel to them. Our awareness of his return and what that entails should only further motivate us to prioritize his gospel in everything that we do. You want to make the gospel forefront and it feels awkward to you? Remember that everything that is not his, as in redeemed, will be melted with a fervent heat, not just normal heat, but it'll be annihilated in that sense. That those who don't believe face eternal punishment. When Christ returns, the patience is over. The long-suffering is over. Make the most of the time he's given. The problem is we don't tend to make the most of the time that we've been given. Maybe it's because we've distanced ourselves from the reality of his return. Maybe because we truly don't know or believe in him. Whatever it may be, we tend to not prioritize the gospel. But if we are to be living as his children, if we are to be exemplifying our Savior and doing his will, we cannot lose sight of his word or the discernment that comes from properly interpreting it. And so right in the context of, of him saying, you need to live a life of, of external conduct and behavior. You're supposed to be internally godly. You're supposed to be anticipating, looking forward, expecting his return, that you're supposed to be a Christian and you're supposed to act as a Christian and focus on his gospel. He still doesn't check it off and say, nothing matters besides that. No, he says that if you're going to be his child, that means you will be seeing and understanding his word. You go on from 15 through 17, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. In other words, Paul's written the same thing to you. You've heard this before. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And so here Peter is shifting because we've been talking about false teachers and now he's zeroed in on the reality of Christ's return. He says, Christ is returning, which was a lie they said, and it changes who you are and it changes or focuses your priority. And now he comes back and he says, but, but watch out for the false teachers and to be prepared to answer the questions or understand it, you better know God's word. And he links to Paul's letters, letters that warned and taught God's wisdom to these churches, letters often pointing to the same biblical principles as Peter, letters that covered in depth the return of Christ, sharing eschatological, which is a big word for end time events. These letters were scripture. So on the same level as the Old Testament, though parts of them were hard to understand, hard to interpret, that it was still possible if approached correctly and diligently. So Peter's acknowledging that there's portions of Scripture that we may have to actually use our brain on, that we actually might have to think about, but that false teachers have taken those things and they've distorted the meaning to fit their agenda. And here's where Peter hints to the fact that they've gone beyond just the return of Christ and they've gone to all of Scripture because now they're distorting all of Scripture. In other words, they're going to undermine God's law, his repentance, justification, sanctification. They will ultimately undermine 
it all. You go out and hear certain people that claim to be preachers and you watch their theology just start digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's people that have erased hell. There's people that have erased punishment and judgment. They, they've gone off into every direction. Why? Because they will twist all of scripture ultimately. They may start at one point and either them or the people who follow them or the third generation after that are going to end up twisting God's word to fit their agenda. And Peter is concerned, remember who he's writing to, that true believers, redeemed in the church, will be led astray and lose their stability. That's what steadfastness means. He doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation. He's going to lose their confidence in truth and their doctrinal grounding. And so he wants them to beware, watch out, and also to be aware of God's truth. That's why he mentions Paul's writing. He's not just talking about what he's writing now. He knows what he's writing is God's word. He's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. And he's linking to what Paul wrote, which he also knows is God's word. And he mentions Paul's writing because they should be reading or hearing it. We use the word read because uh, the word in print for us is, is easy, right? If I want a Bible, I can even go to Walmart and get a Bible. I haven't looked lately, but I'm assuming I can go to Walmart and get a Bible. There, they would have these letters and they would have copies of the letters that would be in the church and they needed to be hearing it or reading it. Same concept. I put down, you cannot know what you don't read and study. So if you want to be understanding of what the Bible says, then you had better get into it for yourself. You cannot rest in, I come to church every week and I hear it preached. You must be studying it for yourself. We too often are easily swayed because we've not taken the time to be in Scripture to actually see the truth for ourselves. You must be permeated in God's Word. But the work doesn't end with seeing it. We're also responsible to be discerning it, understanding what it says. See, the false teachers take the words of God and twist them for their purpose, which comes with eternal consequences. One of the guys I read, Michael Green, he says this, the false teachers no longer submitted their actions to the scrutiny of Scripture. They made Scripture the justification for what they wanted to do, which is a perfect illustration of a false teacher. False teaching is always going to take Scripture and justify an already action. It results for them in eternal destruction. God will not have his grace manipulated into license or his moral authority disregarded. You can be as bombastic as you want here on earth. You will not be in front of your Lord and Savior. God is not going to be like, well, you're a good talker. I'll let you through. Everything will be fine. No, he will not allow his grace to be manipulated into license or his authority be disregarded. Uh, if you've ever read, listened, or seen someone proving their point against Scripture with the twist of another Scripture, then you have a sure sign of a false teacher. We had our business meeting this morning. One of the questions we had was, what is a false teacher? Someone well-known, uh, Rick Warren, writes that he's been wrong for 40 years, and he undermines what Scripture says about who should be a pastor, and he says that because uh, his church was taken over and has a, has a lady pastor right now. And, and this may step on some toes. That's unbiblical. It's really clear. Read Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, Titus. Read the Bible. You'll find that in there. But he's taken the Great Commission. He's taken some things that unfold at the tomb 
says he's read 200 other books and literally is pushing a false teaching on everyone. Why? He grabs scripture and he twists it just enough to try to make his point. Now his is made horribly in his attempt. I've seen, I've seen false teachers do a better job than he did. But either way, you see this. When you see scripture twisted to force or fit an agenda that you have, then you already know you're dealing with a false teacher. But don't miss this, because this is critical. Peter leaves us no room for complacency. We must be aware and cannot claim that we have not been warned. Seeing ye know these things before. In other words, this isn't the only letter that's helping you understand what you need to know. This isn't the only book of the Bible that you're going to have. Seeing you know these things before, beware lest ye also. And what's the danger for all of us? That we follow it. That someone's charisma, someone's words, someone's ability, someone's position. Do I think Rick Warren is a believer? I actually do. Is he functioning as a false teacher? Well, he definitely is. Does he have a ton of influence in this world? You better believe it. So when he writes that, there are believers who are going to be swayed. They're not going to walk into heaven and say, wow, it wasn't my fault. You let Rick Warren trick me. God says, be aware, beware lest you also. Liars are going to lie. And that should not catch us by surprise. Peter makes clear that false teachers will not stop at Christ's prophetic return, but will continue to distort God's truth for their own purpose. It's a purpose that destroys them and weakens the church. Yet the solution is straightforward. See or read God's word and understand it. Be discerning. The problem is we don't want to give the time to it or don't like the message we get from it. Why don't you read God's word? Just think real quickly. Why don't you read God's word? I don't have enough time. I'm very busy. You don't know my life. I don't like to read. I need more pictures. You name it. Buy a picture Bible then. Get in it. There's a thousand reasons. They all link to me not having the time for it. Or I don't read it because what it says convicts me. When I, I read someone, it was Howard Hendricks. He says, when someone tells him that the Bible's boring, he says, that reflects more on your heart than on God's. We don't want to give the time to it or don't like the message we get from it, which is tragic because in everything, we are to be growing and glorifying. Verse 18 says this, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And what Peter has done as he closes out Second Peter is he's come full circle back to the beginning of his letter when he called to the church in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. We are to be advancing, is what he's saying. That is what growing implies. That's what the word implies there in Greek. Grow, what does it mean? Advance. Increase in the, the sphere of something. What should you increase in? Increase in grace. As MacArthur notes, because of his grace, God forgives the sins of his children. They in turn feed on scripture and commune with Christ, thereby increasing their knowledge of him. What did Peter say in 1 Peter? 
First uh, Peter chapter two, two, he says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. How do you become a growing Christian? Be in God's word. There's no mountaintop experience. There's no worshiping on the hiking trail that you're talking about. Get in God's word. You want to grow? Be in his word. That growth will equate to an increasing maturity and be prepared to ward off false doctrine and spiritual deception. And that growth prevents others from twisting our relationship and response to our Lord and Savior. Very charismatic false teachers have the ability to take your experience and turn it against you. How do you prevent that? How do you prevent them twisting what you have in Christ by being in his word? And as we grow in Christ, we're to be perpetually praising him. He, it says, warrants the glory now and forever because he is God, our Lord and Savior. We give him glory both now and understand this forever. It never changes. This is the focus. This is what we do. Uh, This life journey as believers is not a stagnant one. We're not to be sitting in a dead church with a dead Christian life doing nothing. We're called to be constantly growing in our faith, to constantly become more mature, more like our Savior, more equipped to glorify his name. As you analyze your Christian life and you say, well, I haven't grown at all in five years, that's a problem. If you examine your life, you'd say, well, I can't grow anymore. I've grown all I can grow. That's a problem. This Christian life is never stagnant, and I'm speaking of individual growth. You are constantly becoming more like Christ or you're not doing what Christ called you to do or what Peter is calling us to do through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why does that happen? The problem is growth involves change and we like being who we are. Why aren't you growing? Because you like you the way you are. I don't want to change. I want to be me. This is who I am. Can't God accept me for who I am? Aren't I good enough? No, you're not. You're not good enough. You're not where you need to be. You are supposed to be constantly growing. There's not a single believer alive today that shouldn't be growing. If they're not growing, it's because it involves change and they like who they are. And here's the reality. We're never to like who we are. I know that's countercultural. We should always be looking toward the prize. We always should be becoming more like him. Because we are not good enough and we're not trying to become good enough for him. We're trying to become like him because that is our calling as his children. And the problem is glorifying him involves shifting the focus away from ourselves and we like the praise. We like who we are and we like getting credit for it. And so it's very hard to be constantly changing and constantly focused on glorifying him instead of ourselves and being like him and not like me. See, we're caught up, and you just put your name in the, in the box. I like being Kenny. I like who Kenny is. I like how Kenny responds. I don't want to be a different Kenny. And he's right. I shouldn't be Kenny at all. I'm supposed to be like Christ. And I am my identity in a world that's fixated on identity. My identity is to fade away. Because when I walk In front of my Lord and Savior, what I want him to see is his blood and his likeness, not mine. Peter wrote this second letter uh, to the churches in Asia Minor as a caution. Uh, uh, First Peter is that comfort 
Similar topic, but he's comforting them in Christ. Here he's putting a caution against the deception of this world, uh, the deception that inevitably sneaks in the front door of the church. He wrote, so they and we would be adequately warned and prepared. We are warned and we are prepared. The solution to combating lies, uh, to having a grounded faith. This whole series is about a grounded faith and the, and the whole Solution to a grounded faith is not complicated. It just requires a commitment or diligence towards our Lord and Savior. We need a commitment to see him for who he is. He is our Lord. He's not your buddy. He doesn't hang out with you. He redeemed you. He saved you. He is God and you are not. That's how you need to see him. See him for who he is your Lord, your authority, your King, to whom you submit, to whom you are a slave. It's a commitment to know what he said. And that means the Bible. Know him, know what he said, and it's a commitment to be who he said to be. And that's growing and glorifying. Peter sums it up perfectly because you're to be growing, to be more like Christ, and everything you do, every action you take, every proclamation you preach whatever you do should be glorifying to him so as we end our series on first and second peter ask yourself this am i committed to my savior and what he desires of me let's close in prayer let me father thank for this opportunity we have to finish up your word, specific letters to very specific churches in Asia Minor. And we recognize that Peter is, is trying to ground the church. He recognized that his death was imminent as well. Uh, he does die shortly after this. And he wants the church not to be duped by liars and deceivers. He wants the church to be aware. But he doesn't want to give excuse. He's not making uh, excuses for them not doing, but instead instructing them on how they can live for you, how they can be grounded in their faith and serve their Lord and Savior. And I ask that as, as we confront these things in our lives, that if we examine our life, is it growing and is it glorifying you? And if we recognize something that is this off from that, that we don't casually brush it aside and walk out and say, we'll be back next Sunday, but instead uh, deal with that, make a change because the solution is not difficult, Lord. Give us the focus and the conviction to change, to be committed to you and knowing who you are, to be committed to your word, to be committed to doing what you've asked us to do, to be growing in, our, in your grace and in knowledge, and to be constantly glorifying you. In your precious and holy name, amen.